Welcome back to Hidden Messages Podcast. By the time this podcast episode gets released, it'll have been about a month since the Basecamp memo. Now, I have a lot of things to say about the Basecamp memo and some of the surrounding issues, but it's not really specifically about Basecamp, and that's why I think it's okay to talk about it now, because Basecamp is already old news, believe it or not, in the, the news cycle, the Twitter news cycle. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, because again, the news cycle moves very fast, maybe you missed it. Back in late April of 2021, Basecamp, which is a very small, but very, I don't want to say well-known, but relative to its size, it's ex- extremely well-known company based out of Chicago. It's fully remote. The founders make project management software, but they also write a lot of books about how to run a company. My initial impressions of Basecamp were very positive. My first exposure to Basecamp came from my partner, Debbie, whom you've heard on the podcast in some of our earlier seasons, who had used Basecamp and had liked the software. And this was many years ago, I think kind of early on when Basecamp started. And that kind of just made me think, oh, well, Debbie really liked it. And then one time for work, when I was working at a completely different place from where I am now, they assigned us a couple of books on like company culture stuff. And one of the books was, honestly, I don't even remember the title because Basecamp writes a whole bunch of books and they're all kind of similar-ish. But one of the books was a Basecamp book. It was pretty short. And I really liked the book. I really liked the writing style. I liked their work philosophy or their management philosophy. It sounded like a dream. And I guess it actually was. But I, I really liked it. I mean, they had this sort of idea of how work could be different that you didn't have to be in the office all the time. And this was way before, you know, remote work became trendy, or frankly, even for a lot of companies feasible, given high speed internet access and video conferencing software, etc. But they had ideas about, you know, how long meetings should be, what kind of benefits you should give employees, how to foster a company culture, even if you're fully remote, things like that. And I really liked those ideas. I think I even might have read a second book, which had similar things in it. I like that their company handbook was online. It felt very open sourcey. You know, once I started getting on Twitter, I started following the two founders of Basecamp and was particularly particularly interested in the things that DHH had to say. What I found though is, and this isn't just for the Basecamp founders, I think in general, I've started to get pretty cynical of anyone who is extremely well-known and is a supposed thought leader and is, you know, very public persona that says all sorts of cool things. Like, honestly, I don't know if you remember a while back, there was a company in Seattle where the CEO said that he was going to raise the minimum wage at his company to $70,000 per year. And he got all this positive press about him. And again, I was following him and I thought it was pretty interesting the things he had to say. But the more I did a deep dive on him, it turns out he was abusive. He had weird, selfish motives for raising the minimum wage. The company culture sounds pretty toxic. There's all sorts of issues. I mean, to a certain extent, like nobody's perfect, right? But I think that there are some people who put forth this sort of amazing persona that just, it, it would be very difficult for even a well-meaning person to live up to. With the base camp situation, which is they announced that there'd be some changes at base camp one of which was no politics at work, and you can talk politics outside of work, and that 
all of the DEI stuff would be up to the DEI director, who was part of HR. Then there was huge blowback. Then there, there was all this journalistic uncovering of the backstory behind all of this stuff, where it had to do with some kind of funny names list that some employees had kept for years. Then it turned out there was some extreme right-wing, Breitbart touting employee who had been there forever, who resigned. There were all these massive discussions and then mass resignations from about a third of the company who took payouts because the founders were like, if you don't like it here, get out, we'll pay you. Some of the responses to this whole thing, especially people who didn't actually read what the situation was, were kind of like, hey, don't talk politics at work. That sounds good to me. I just want to get my work done. But when you look into more of the nuance of what the context of not talking politics at work is, it wasn't really about politics. And I think the, the word politics is a bit tricky because when you say talk politics at work, my immediate reaction is to do with electoral politics, right? I'm thinking that one time when I was at work and a coworker was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they elected Obama. This is terrible for the country, yada, 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 whatever. And I had voted for Obama and I didn't really want to get in an argument about it. Like, honestly, I'm kind of annoyed that you voted for the other person, but I don't want you venting at me for my vote. And honestly, I think the votes should be kind of private, frankly. That's why you have private ballots when you go to the ballot box. <laughs> That's why, you know, your people aren't allowed to take pictures and stuff. You know, I think that there is a spectrum of what politics entails. And when it comes to actual electoral politics, I honestly don't care to hear about who you voted for, who you didn't vote for, what bill you voted for, what bill you didn't vote for. Now, that said, obviously, there's not a clear cut line. There's some overlap, right? Like if you vote for a bill that criminalizes being gay or or invalidates your trans existence or does some other horrible things like that is a that is a electoral politics that's a bill that's something that you voted for that kind of crosses over into other types of politics. Now in the 90s we have a slogan called the personal is political and I think that might have come out of intersectional feminism or something. I don't remember the exact origin of that phrase, but it, a lot of people said it, the personal is political. And what they mean by that is that what you do, who you are, how you express yourself, how you treat others, the way you live your life, it affects other people and other demographics of people. And there are ways in which your behavior and way you go about life reinforces systems of oppression or fights against them or does both. And that is a type of politics. And it obviously affects the ballot box. It affects how you vote too. So it's a little bit weird because on the one hand, I don't want to hear you vote, who you voted for. But if you voted for a violent white supremacist who would rather I be dead and call me racial slurs, well, that vote says something outside of electoral politics, right? And I think part of why this is all coming to a head is that people on the left and people on the right in America are both realizing that we don't have anything that we agree on anymore. I think part of that is when, when people talk about polarization, I think polarization doesn't just mean we don't agree and we extremely don't agree. I think what's happened on the left is that people have actually become more progressive, have become more inclusive, have come to realize that they need to be more generous and even more liberal than they were before. And then people on the right have become more extreme, more fascist, more openly racist and sexist, etc., than they were before. And the people on the right aren't even pretending that they believe in a democracy anymore. I mean, that's why 
you know, as I'm recording this, the Republican leadership is ousting Liz Cheney for saying that the election wasn't stolen. And there's only a handful of Republicans, I think it's her and Mitt Romney and maybe somebody else, that believe in, I will operate by the rules of the game, we will have free and fair elections, and if I win, cool, and if you win, maybe not so cool, but I will honor that win that you won, and we will just, you know, duke it out. Whereas the vast majority of Republicans in America now have have just become completely detached from reality and power hungry. Like, it's not about any kind of free and fair election. It's just whatever we can do to win, 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 and push through all of our policies and win. Yeah, those are the two extremes right now. And so it becomes difficult then to say, oh, we're just going to agree to disagree and you voted for that person, but that doesn't really affect my life because we're no longer operating on a shared set of assumptions and a shared set of goals with different means to get there, right? And obviously, to a certain extent, we never were, but there was at least some semblance of that. And I, I really push back on this whole idea that, you know, when people talk about how awful the Republican Party is now, they're like, oh, it was always like that, went back to Reagan. It's like, okay, the seeds of it were at Reagan, the seeds of it were at Nixon, the seeds were at Newt Gingrich, but there's difference between a young sapling and a full-grown tree, right? You can, Just because you saw the young sapling or even the seed doesn't mean be like, oh, well, the tree was always there. It's like, no, the tree wasn't always there. Somebody watered that tree. Somebody nurtured that tree and grew that tree. Yes, there were glimmers of this going back decades, but it's gotten worse. Just because something was there doesn't mean it can't get worse. Like, for example, the term bipartisan used to mean something. It used to mean, in theory, that Republic, Republicans and Democrats who disagreed about how to handle something could find some common ground and pass some legislation that had a little bit of what each party wanted. What it's come to mean now is if the Democrats try to pass legislation without any Republican support, that they're somehow being bad people, even though the Republicans have specifically said, we will not vote for anything that the Democrats want to pass. I think where we are now, I've kind of gone off on a tangent here, but in terms of the workplace, there is actual legislation that is invalidating humanity, right? That's saying it's okay, like Republicans are trying to push through, it's okay to run over protesters with your car and kill them. They're passing legislation to say you can't vote on Sundays, you know, to try and target black churches that have a, a vote on Sundays kind of thing. They're trying to say you can't pass out water and food to people waiting in line to vote as we are also closing down polling stations in places that we don't like. I mean, each of these things is fighting against real humanity and democracy. And it goes way beyond just like, uh, we kind of disagree on this issue. And so I think the whole idea of not talking about politics at work is kind of bogus to a certain extent. Again, I don't want to hear constantly about who you voted for, but at a certain to a certain extent, the way that you talk and live your life kind of tells me who you vote for if you even vote at all. The other thing too is that you can't really divorce work from your politics. And again, by politics, I don't mean your electoral politics. You could literally, you could literally not vote. You could literally not have the right to vote or you could literally have the right to vote and choose not to vote. But your politics still lives in you and how you approach problems, how you approach people, how you interact with folks, everything about how you live your life. And so the idea of just saying, keep politics out of the workplace, it's basically just saying, let's just pretend there are no problems and just maintain the status quo. And if the status quo means injustice, you're basically just saying we're going to maintain injustice. 
I also find it laughable. This did not get enough attention at the time because there was just so much stuff going on with Basecamp. But I find it kind of laughable that they were like, well, I'll talk about politics outside of work, but all the all the diversity stuff is going to be up to the diversity, equity, and inclusion director. And it's like, how do you expect that director to do her job if she's the only one who cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion? I mean, this is something that DI directors have been fighting for for decades now. And I've especially heard it in the school sphere, but there's this kind of weird push and pull where on the one hand, it's weird to not let marginalized folks be in the leadership of diversity efforts. But on the other hand, if they're the only ones doing it, well, that doesn't really move the needle then, right? In order to change all of these systems that we have, these systems of oppression, you need you need both the oppressed and the oppressors to dismantle that system. You know, I, I know that there is the, the sort of empowerment cry sometimes to be like, no, we free ourselves, other people don't free us. But yeah, it's to a certain extent, but really we're kind of all in this together. And it's a lot easier to dismantle the systems of power if the people in power are helping you to dismantle it instead of helping to reinforce it. So yeah, I just, I think the other thing that this kind of makes me think of is this sort of bogus argument about merit, the myth of meritocracy, basically, that especially in tech, that there that there's what sometimes people refer to as hard skills and soft skills, and they kind of make it sound like coding or some kind of technical knowledge is a hard skill and then like being nice to people or finding ways to interact with people is like a soft skill and the truth is you need all of this stuff to get your job done and there's idea of like a brilliant jerk who's just brilliant it's just actually not super productive but the other thing too is that you know as we can see from people who are like brain surgeons who just know nothing about anything else like sometimes being advanced in a certain area means you have particular shortcomings in other areas and your arrogance may actually make be your downfall essentially we see this all the time in tech so this whole idea of because i've heard this so many times before it's just nauseating at this point the idea that oh well if we get more diversity hires in tech that we're quote lowering the bar or how can we maintain quality like a that's super offensive just because what you're essentially saying is that unless you're a straight straight white male or straight white or straight uh, Asian male, able-bodied, et cetera, that you are inferior, right? And that in order to get more people of other types that you essentially have to, quote, lower the bar. Now, the idea that there's even a bar to begin with is already laughable because, I mean, look at how many tech companies are like doing these awful things. And then when they find out that things are not operating the way they should. They're like, oh, how would we have known? It's like, you're the ones who said, we can solve this problem. We can do whatever. We're going to change the world. And then when you're like, oh, wait, people are going to harass other people using our platform? We never thought of that. Oh, our facial recognition technology had trouble recognizing black faces? Oh, gee, we never thought of that. Oh, our self-driving car couldn't detect really short people like children? oh, shoot, we didn't think about, like, it's like, if you're so brilliant, why can't you think of these things ahead of time? So the, the thing is, being able to just write code does not make you a good programmer or a good problem solver. Honestly, it's just code. It's just the language. That's like saying, because I speak English, that I can write a good book, or because I can write English, I can write a good book. It's like, I just know the language. The quality 
isn't just the ability to write. It's also what you write. It's about how you solve the problem. It's about what problem you choose to solve and the ways that you think about the consequences of your actions. It's just, it just kind of makes me sad sometimes. I don't know. I guess I'm fortunate that at least at some of the recent places I've worked, even if not everybody cares about social justice issues, there are always a handful of people who are very passionate about. And so I don't at least feel alone. But God, if I worked at a place where they were like, hey, you can't talk about social justice issues. We don't really care about DEI. Just get your work done. That tells me everything about what that company values. And it's not productivity. There is something that would kind of resemble productivity but in a very skewed, white male, straight, able-bodied way. But it would, again, have major shortcomings that they would later say, oh, we, we couldn't foresee that. And as other people have pointed out, this is not an original thought on my part, as other people have pointed out, all of these books that Basecamp has written has been about how to manage people, how to manage a company. And then now they're saying, oh, wait, we don't know what's going on here. We're sorry. Oops, it looks all, as if all these employees are leaving. It's like, okay, well, if a third of your workforce resigns at once, maybe that should tell you that you don't know as much as you thought about managing people. And maybe you had some clever things that sounded good in a book, but you weren't really taking into account all of the stuff. Honestly, a third of your workforce, that's kind of a lot to lose, even if, even if you have only 60 people. Honestly, losing 20 people out of 60 is really bad. It's really bad. I mean, I've been at some toxic workplaces where a lot of people resign, and never seen anything like that anywhere I've worked. <laughs> That's really bad. So yeah, you know, and this is not to kick base camp when they're down. I honestly, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical, but I'm also kind of an optimist. So I'm hoping, you know, like, I mean, it's possible that, you know, the two, two co-founders of base camp might just go down the right wing reactionary hole of, well, all these people who care about social justice left and the people who seem to like us tend to be these right-wingers, so we'll just embrace the right-wingers. They might go down that path, but they might also just say, hey, you know what, we really need to think about how we're running this company and do some serious changes around here. So I'm not holding my breath for that. I'm not going to say that they will go down that route, but we'll see what happens. And I don't know. I, I think that uh, it's a lot to manage a company. And you know, even though most companies have a primary goal of making money, I don't think that's completely antithetical to having some semblance of values, some semblance of caring about, at the very least, your employees and your customers to a certain extent. Talk politics at work. It really depends on what you consider to be politics.